I was asked about uh, Friday night's date night, and I don't have any pictures for one good reason. It was dark, <laughs> and the pictures really don't convey it, but we had a marvelous, marvelous time, and we'll do it again. We had a good group. We had 15 couples, and it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, time on Friday night. All right, if you'll grab your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. If you're looking for Nehemiah, it's in the middle of your Bible before Psalms. Nehemiah chapter 2. <clears throat> One of the great things about being a Bible believer is that you don't just decide some things you're going to say. A Bible believer takes the Bible for what it says. And so as we go through the book of Nehemiah, it's laid out providentially, which means God's in charge of it, how God wrote it. And therefore, it is written for us to learn from. Romans 15.4 says the things that were written aforetime in the old time. Things that were written in the Old Testament were written for our learning, that we, through comfort of the Scriptures, would have hope. So when we go through something like the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, like we're doing this whole year, there's going to be a lot to learn. And when you just read it through the first time, you might see, and you ought to read it more than one time, but when you read it through the first time, you think it's just about rebuilding a city. And then as you read along and you find out all the, the symbols and the, what's called type, types and, and shadows of the New Testament, you start to see all the things that apply to the Christian life. And so tonight, um, or this, night, this morning, I want to talk about the courage and confidence of the believer. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 20, Nehemiah is speaking to his enemies. He's not just speaking into the air. He's speaking straight into those who are mocking and making fun of and preparing to fight him tooth and nail. He says this in verse 20. Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, note these words, He will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants, watch the next word, will arise and build. But ye, speaking to his enemies, have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. <clears throat> now, I've titled this, Since God Will, Therefore We Will. Okay? Now, we normally get our courage and confidence from so many different things. We get our confidence, some people get their confidence from their upbringing. Maybe their parents were really good at instilling confidence in you. Other people get confidence in their success. You watch a child, you set them out, and they're four years old, and they're kicking the ball straight and uh, um, per uh, perfectly uh, directed at a goal, you go, this kid, man, he's, he's going to go far. We normally get our courage and our confidence by our successes. Some people get courage and confidence by the wad of money in their pocket. It makes them feel powerful. Some people, their friends and their popularity make them feel confident about themselves. Others, when they watch the power they have over others, Sometimes physical, you see somebody and he's big and brawny like me, and he just walks into a room and everybody's terrified. He feels, he feels, he feels confidence. Oh, all right. How come everybody's laughing? Anyway, uh, and we get our confidence sometimes from our view of ourselves. And really, the world makes a huge deal of how we view ourselves and and it's all about me. And if I just thought higher of myself, if I just thought I was, I was worth more, then I would have confidence and I would do more. That's not true. That's the opposite of what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, when none of that is in your life, usually you'll struggle with fears. I don't want to ask you how many of you, feel, how many of you fear failing at your job or as a parent or as a... Um, you know, in your finances, people live with constant fear of failure. Some people struggle with anxiety, a feeling of worry or nervousness. 
They're uneasy because they don't know how things are going to turn out. You ever been like that? Can you imagine if your 15-year-old son came in and says, Dad, I built you a car. You want to drive it to work? The, son, the dad sits in and goes, am I going to trust this thing? Anxiety. Some people struggle with cowardice. They find themselves pulling back and pulling away because they've been hurt so many times. They just don't want to get into the fight. They just don't want to go into work. They just don't want to try and carry the burdens anymore because of all of the hurts of the past. Ends up in depression, overwhelming guilt and shame. <clears throat> when, when we don't have that perfect upbringing, when we don't have that money in our pocket, when we don't have a string of success, when, when, our, when our friends we can count on one finger, we just quit. But that's not the Christian life. Listen to the confidence of Nehemiah again in verse 20. He says, Then answered I back to them and said unto them, The God of heaven, He will prosper us. Oh, we might be tempted to say, well, we hope he'll prosper us. But he's got a confidence, he says, he will prosper us. Because of that, he says, therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build our city again. Where did he get such confidence? What was it about Nehemiah that gave him this confidence and courage to set out to rebuild what was destroyed, what was in rubble? Where did he get confidence to to press ahead and start an impossible task. I don't know, the, the more I, I go into the background of Nehemiah and I think about these things, these walls were three miles in length around the city. There were three miles of walls. The walls were 18 feet, let me see if I'm right, 18 feet thick, 30 feet high, and there were 12 massive solid wooden gates that had to be rebuilt and set up along throughout the, those walls. It was a mammoth task. I mean, I can barely build Legos. And Nehemiah says, since God's going to prosper us, therefore we're going to build. How did he get such confidence? Where is that? Because surely that's a good thing to have. Now, I'm not talking about arrogance. I'm going I'm to expose that. Because there is a deadly disease among people, and that's arrogance. And the arrogant says, I don't need God. I'll build without him. The arrogant says, I don't need God's people. I don't need that Bible. I don't need to be born again. That's arrogance. One day you'll find out you did, and you missed your chance. <clears throat> but Nehemiah got his confidence for such a great task from what we're going to look at this morning. As a matter of fact, I want to say everything was against Nehemiah. This was no simple thing where you just say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, fix this window, or I'm going to try to patch this roof, or I'm going, to, I'm going to patch the tire on the bike. I mean, those are normal things. No, this was an impossible. This was something he looked at and he said, it's not going to happen unless God helps me. And I think God's going to help me. See, there were huge piles of rubble everywhere. There were only a few people, when we talk about a few, I'm only, we're talk, only talking in the hundreds of people, not thousands we only had a few hundred people who were available to help. There was such a lack of supplies when he first started this burden and this vision. The, the aloneness that he was facing, he was stepping out and he was wondering, is anybody going to come with me? The aloneness that he was facing was going to pile up on him because there are going to be many times when people are going to look at him and go, Nehemiah, are you sure we're supposed to be doing this? And all the enemies too. <clears throat> everything was against him. You know, he didn't go there and everybody, when he didn't arrive, everybody wasn't clapping and shouting and fireworks going off. The enemies were laughing and it was terrifying. And yet, Nehemiah seemed so certain that he would succeed. He was filled with such courage. How do you do that? I don't know why this is so small, but we'll make it work. But we have background. I've talked to you through chapter 1 and chapter 2. I've talked to you about how the first question that we needed to answer was, does anybody care to rebuild? Now, you sit with children. You try to build blocks. You know what children do? 
and knock it down. They don't want to rebuild. They want to watch you build and then knock it down. So the mature Christian says, you know, I'm tired of knocking things down. I'm tired of criticizing the preacher. I'm tired of tearing into my home and my relationships. I'm tired of watching everything fall apart. I want to rebuild. So the question that we're being asked through the book of Nehemiah is, does anybody care enough to even want to rebuild what sin has ruined? Then we went into focusing on the place, place of prayer. Before you can ever step into a, 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 a mental, physical, heart, relationship problem, before you ever go in and try to rebuild anything, you better rebuild the place of prayer. You better get into a place where you say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I can't go unless you go with me. Moses said that. Uh, Moses had, had tried to lead Israel forward out of Egypt, trying to lead them through the wilderness, and they just kept fighting. Can you imagine? I watched, we had a friend who, of all people I've ever known, he was the only one I ever saw take a cat for a walk. Whatever the name of that cat was. Remember that thing with that leash? He took that cat on a walk. Uh, leash took her. Can you imagine taking a hundred cats on a walk? How about a million of them? Like Moses. He says, I give up. God, I'm not doing this anymore unless you go with me. And that place of prayer in your life, I'm not talking about your husband's place of prayer or your parents' place of prayer or your wife's place of prayer or your pastor's place of prayer. Your place, your time has to be rebuilt before you ever try to fix something in your life that's broken. Thirdly, then we got into chapter 2 and we watched as, as um, Artaxerxes says to Nehemiah, so what do you want to do? And the question is to us, what do we want to do? What is it we want to rebuild? Then um, two weeks ago, I talked about the first steps. And I believe the, the first steps are the best. I believe the most exciting. I, when, you, when you first step out by faith and you, you step out to, to do something you believe is all in your heart, it is, it is so thrilling. Uh, when you have everything all figured out and all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed and all of the money's there and everything is just working fine, there's no fun. But there's great thrill when you have no idea what's going to happen, you just know it's going to be awesome. The first steps, you know, like when you first got married. I talked a little bit, I used a couple of illustrations on Friday night, and I said when you first got married, you thought this person, they're the one. And they are, okay? Just, just nod your head. They are the one for the rest of your life. But you found out. <laughs> Did I marry this? And yes. You see, the first, when you first got married in the honeymoon and the first kids are great, but by the sixth and eighth and tenth kid, it's like, ah! Yeah, the first steps are fun. The first steps are exciting. The first step is by faith. It gets hard work after that, amen? So we talk about the first steps, but this morning I want to really focus on our needed courage and the needed confidence of the believer. Where does it come from? Are we just trying to promote arrogance? Or is it just sheer foolishness to just step ahead and try to rebuild what sin has destroyed. I believe it is a necessary attitude of every believer. You've got to have confidence. Nothing was ever done where you've, from the start, given up. You cannot look and go, it's not going to work. <laughs> you've already ruined it. We need confidence and courage because they're the ingredients to victory in the Christian's life. Father, we, we look to you and ask you as we bow our heads in prayer to speak to us from your word, clearly, convictingly. Lord, would you please help us? Help us to know what it's like to have real courage. Not that we have ability. Not that we know what we're doing. But we know you. And that's all that we need. Bless the hearer, Lord in this room who is, a fear, is afraid, is full of fear, full of panic and anxiety, full of defeat and discouragement because nothing's working. I pray they find their success in you. I pray they find salvation in your son. Lord, I pray that every person in this room would be encouraged this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Nehemiah had a view. What was it that... that that made him so courageous. And the first thing I want to say is his view of God. 
Now, the world says your view of yourself is where you begin, and you got to throw that book away. I don't care if it says Oprah Winfrey on it, Dr. Phil, or I don't care who it is. Throw that thing away. Your success in confidence and courage as a Christian comes mainly from your view of God. Now, how do people normally view God? Well, I know most of them, most people you talk to, their view of God is completely wrong. And, it, and yours was too. Before you got saved, you thought of God as a genie. You went to church, you, you genuflected, you said your prayers, and you said, okay, God, you owe me. Remember that? I get three wishes today, right? <laughs> then as you got a little older, you saw him as an impotent, old, and out-of-date deity. And then as you got a little older, you saw him just as one of many gods out there, none of which are real. Well, all three are wrong views of God. How did Nehemiah see God? Well, look at chapter 1, Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4. He saw God as right. Chapter 1 and verse 4, we go back a little over old ground here just to see what Nehemiah saw. It came to pass when I heard these words, learned of the condition of, of, Jer of Jerusalem, that I sat down and wept, and I mourned certain days, and he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God. And remember, the old word terrible doesn't mean terrible like bleh, but it means terrifying. The great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night. For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the, com thy command the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant. You see, when, when, when Nehemiah got, got down to business, he didn't, he didn't focus on the empire that had brought ruin to his people, he did not focus on the Babylonian and the Persian kings and, and, and all of the armies that had, that had taken apart every stone and every wall and every house of his, of his nation. He knew it was God. He knew that God had brought judgment upon Israel, upon Judah, and upon Jerusalem, and that God was right to do it. Let me tell you a little story. David up on, a, mount, uh, up on a, 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 a housetop one night, is out there flipping channels on the, inter, on the internet or on his uh, um, cable TV. You'll get my drift in a moment. Some of you will catch up. And he finds a channel where a woman's undressing, and he lingers. And he watches her get into a bathtub, and he lingers. And he finds out that woman has nobody else coming in and checking on her. She's all alone. And he calls for her to come to his house. Her name is Bathsheba. He, a married man, takes a married woman and commits adultery. It's in your Bible. Well, he gets away with it. How does he get away with it? He murders her husband. Perfect murder. Nobody knows about it. There's nobody of consequence. So nine months go by. He is living high on the hog. He's got this man's wife now, part of his collection, and he's living without guilt and without embarrassment. He's got nothing haunting him. He's living in sin and not a conscience about it until one man comes up to him named Nathan, and Nathan the prophet sticks his long bony finger at him and says, let me tell you a story, David. And David, here's the story of a man who stole a, a, a single ewe lamb from a very poor man. And David, in his rage, as a shepherd, said, that man ought to die for, for this wealthy man stealing this little baby ewe lamb to, to just consume on his lust. And Nathan said, thou art the man. You stole another man's wife. You know what David did? David said, you're right. And I should die. And you know what? That response saved his life because he should have died. The Old Testament law said if you commit adultery, you should die. Amen. Be nice if it was in place today. It'd put a little fear of God in a lot of relationships, wouldn't it? 
So there was David, instead of David, well, you don't know what I was, the pressure I was under. You don't know what it's like being married to Abigail. You don't know what it's like. You know what he said? You're right. Let me tell you this. We need a generation of Christians who start off with their view of God going, God is right. And if God's getting me to reap what I've sown, he's right. Amen. You know, uh, Nehemiah starts crying out there. He says, we have sinned against you, God. We have dealt very, I like this word. He says, verse 6, he says, we have dealt very corruptly. Verse 7, sorry. Do you like corrupt politicians? I mean, you know what a corrupt politician is, don't you? They're only in power to get. They only embezzle and, and maneuver and make decisions that benefit them. And that's us. We're the corrupt ones. And when we view God and we say, God, you're right and I'm wrong, that's a great place to start. Would you agree? It's all God is right. Right to punish Israel, right to judge Israel, right to bring Israel to ruin. And if God happens to be ruining you and bringing everything back to zero, let him do it. And when you say, Lord, you're right, whatever you're doing, you know what the Lord will say? All right, enough pressure, enough done. We can start to rebuild now. Amen? Now we can rebuild. And I believe God's rightness helped Nehemiah's confidence because Nehemiah is not walking in going, I am so right. I am ready. Look at that. I am right in what I'm doing. You may think you're right, but without God, you're wrong. Amen. So here comes Dave, uh, Nehemiah, and he sees God as right. Secondly, he sees him as constant. I like this. Verse 5, he says, he's writing in his journal. Nehemiah says, and I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keeps his promise. You keep his covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Nehemiah is praying to an infinite and terrifying God. You know, if God is all-powerful, he can do whatever he wants, can he? But you know what you can trust? He won't do whatever he wants. Come on, nod your head. The, one of the greatest characteristics of God is you can trust him. He's the same. He will not change. He's not going to, on the whim, go, I'm fed up with you, Ledbetter. Amen? He is constant. Nehemiah says, Lord, I'm glad you're still there. I'm glad you haven't gone on holiday. I'm glad you're not sleeping. I'm glad you don't back down on your promises. You keep your covenants. That'll help you. I'm telling you, if you mark these things down next to Nehemiah, God is right. God is constant. It'll help you so that you can say, you know what, I can serve that kind of a God. You would never trust a God that constantly changes his mind. Amen? You would never trust a God who goes with the winds of popularity. I mean, there's some churches down, down the road from us their God has changed. Used to believe in purgatory, now they don't believe in purgatory. There used to be a limbo, now there is no limbo. Used to, people used to go to hell, now nobody goes to hell. Everybody goes straight to heaven. I wouldn't trust a God who changes his mind. Amen. You want a God who you, can, you know this is what he says, this is what he promises, and you can trust him. Amen. And God's constance helped Nehemiah's confidence. Thirdly, he viewed God as faithful. That develops this next one. Look at verse 8 and verse 9. He says, remember, I beseech thee the word. Oh, aren't you glad you got a book in your hand that you can remind God of? Does he need to be reminded? No, but you've got a word in your hand. You can say, Lord, I read it here, and you've got to keep your promise. Amen. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, back there in Deuteronomy, saying, if thou transgress, you promised that you would scatter us among all the nations. But you also promised, if we turn unto you and keep your commandments and do them, though we were cast out from the uttermost part of heaven, if we were thrown every direction, yet will you gather us from thence and bring us unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. You'll bring us back to Jerusalem. And I just put it into my words. You understand, I'm trying to read it like, that's what the Lord will do for me. See, one of the most often repeated facts in the Bible about God is this. He is faithful. 
Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Go to 1 Corinthians. Hold your place here and go to the right. Find 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. Snuck right in the middle of this marvelous promise is the greatest promise of all the promises. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. Hold in your place. I hope you didn't lose your place there in Nehemiah. Chapter 10, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There have no temptation taken you. I like how that takes it. It's, it. It comes on you. It just grabs you and throws you to the ground. There had no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man and women. Amen. Make sure you put that both in there. <laughs> but the next four words. But God is faithful. Now, there's a great promise here. He will not suffer you to be attempted above that you're able. Is that a good promise? Uh, is there another good promise that God will use the temptation and make a way, escape, that you may be able to bear? Is that a good promise? Yes. But you know what the best promise in there is? That God will be faithful. That's the promise to hold on to. And Nehemiah had that promise. Nehemiah said, God, you're the, you're the faithful God. You're the God I can trust. First, first Peter 4.19 says, Wherefore, let them that suffer. See, I'm suffering, Pastor. You have no idea what I'm going through. Pastor, if I had a gun... Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. You're just going to have to trust God. You're going to trust him. He's going to be faithful. James 1.17 says this, Every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness. How many of you have a, uh, one of those light switches in your house where you can turn on the light and you can turn it low? God doesn't go bright and dark and bright. And dark. No, there's no variableness and no shadow of turning. You go outside at three in the afternoon and the shadow's here, you go at six and it's way out there. God doesn't cast a different shadow ever. It's the same, always the same. He never changes. He is faithful. Let me just say, God made hundreds and hundreds of not just prophecies, and they're all in your Bible, but he made promises too. You know, God made the promise that if we sin, guess what God's going to do? He's going to scatter your life all over the planet. But if you humble yourself and you turn back to God and you come to him and say, Lord, I'm tired of fighting you. I want to live by this book again. I want to start following Jesus. God can bring anyone from the furthest crevice hiding in, Mount, uh, in the Himalayan mountains can bring him back home. Amen. That's a promise of God. God is faithful. And I think that faithfulness, that dependability, helped Nehemiah be confident to step out in faith, kind of like uh, uh, I, sh I should have asked um, uh, either, uh, well, maybe Eric to bring in some climbing ropes. Now, I would understand the value of a climbing rope, but somebody may come along and hand you a, a sewing thread. Get that from Celine over here, or a knitting yarn. And, and they drop it from the top of an abseiling hill that you're supposed to climb, and there's this yarn hanging down. How many of you would trust that yarn to hold you as you climb up? But Eric throws down a climbing rope and says, I've tested it. It's almost brand new. That thing will hold 250 kgs. And you put your weight into it and you start climbing up that thing, you can trust that rope, let me tell you, because it's not going to let go. The rope is not going to just untwine. And your God is faithful. He is not going to let you fall. He says, no matter how far you think you're going to fall, underneath are the everlasting arms. He will not let you fall. He is faithful. You see, when Nehemiah had this view of God, it helped him so that when he steps in and he says, there's something that needs to be fixed in my life. There's something that needs to be fixed in my home. There's something that needs to be fixed in my mind, in my heart. My, my, I've, I've, got, I've got 14 different broken things in my life, and I need to fix them. Well, let's start by getting our view on God, not what we need to fix. How many of you ever get discouraged looking at the mess in the house you've got to start cleaning up? You ever swim a woman run? The guy's already gone. Um, 
Sometimes we look at the task ahead and what do we do? We give up. Don't look at the task, look at God. Get a good view of God. He's right, he's constant, he's faithful. Let's keep going. He's Savior. Verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. Now, these are thy servants and thy people. He's talking to God and he says, these are thy people whom thou hast, what's that next word? All right, redeemed. Redeemed, now I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You know, God has proven himself to be able to redeem with great power and by a strong hand. How did he bring Israel out of Egypt? By an earthquake? By bugs in the bed? By water turned to blood? By um, uh, lice covering everybody head to toe? Everybody covered head to toe with boils? Flies everywhere? Um, Lightning and, and, and uh, uh, fire uh, mixed with ice, hail coming down out of the sky, burning up the crops. Did you know not one of those things delivered Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh? You know what delivered Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh? The blood of the lamb. With a mighty hand, God saved Israel with a substitute. And that shadow, that, that picture was of his son later that would take the place of us as sinners. And when you start to see God as God who saves, God's not a destroyer, God is a savior. He wants to fix you. He wants to fix your home, he wants to fix your heart. He is the redeemer, he's the fixer of your life. He's the savior. He's also nearby, chapter two, verse one. This, I, kinda, I think this is so cool. Look at chapter two, verse one. It came to pass in the month Nisan, not the car, but the month. In the 20th year, Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine because he was the wine taster. He was checking for poison. He's a poison checker. I took up the wine. I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been before time sad in his presence. It would have got him fired. Wherefore, the king now says unto me, Why is thy countenance said, seeing thou art not sick? You're not sick. What's wrong with you? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. It was very visible. Then was I very afraid, very sore afraid, and I said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth waste, speaking of Jerusalem, and the gates thereof are consumed fire? Then the king said unto me, for what dost thou make request? So I ran off quickly to my prayer closet. Is that what he says? I quickly went down to the cathedral. Oh, I called the pastor to pray. I want you to understand, at that moment, you know what Nehemiah did? God, help me. He knew God was right there. When you see God is not so far, oh, I know if I go, I'll go back to church, I'll get racked to reading my Bible, I'll start going soul winning, and then I'll get close to God. No, no, don't wait to do that to get close to God. You need to get close to God right now, because he's not far from anybody. And when you start seeing God's right there going, I've been waiting all morning for you. From the moment you woke up, I'm like that, I'm like that little ch child going, you ready to play? <laughs> I'm waiting for you all morning, Daddy. Nehemiah's view of God was that he was right there. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Mm. 2 Chronicles 15.4 says, But when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He's near unto anybody who will just call. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Hebrews 13, 5 says, And be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He also saw God as the God that can do the impossible. Still back there in Nehemiah chapter 2, picking up in verse 4. Then the king, he asked that unbelievable question. He says, what do you want? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, here's my list. If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, this is what I want, that thou, that you would send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. The king said unto me, the queen also sent by him, For how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, Oh, by the way, if it pleased the king, 
let letters be given to me, give me protection and authority to the governors beyond the river, the river that they may convey me over until I come into Judah. And a letter to Asaph, Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, all the trees that, that he's in charge of, that he may give me all the timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertain to the house and for the wall, whatever I need for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king gave it to me. You know, when he started to ask, when, some, when, when the king says, so what do you want? He could have said, uh, give, me, give me a two-week two break. Uh, can you give me a, a, a euro an hour raise? No. He brings out and he gives an impossible list. I want you to pay for the new walls that I'm going to put up over down in Jerusalem. I need you to pay for all of the trees that are going to need to be cut down and, and built up as, as the, um, the gates to our new walls. I need you to make sure I get there safely. I need you to give me enough time to be able to do it. You're going to do that, aren't you, king? <laughs> now, do you think that he's just thinking the king is Mr. Nice Guy? You need to read about Artaxerxes. You need to read about the Persian kings, what they did to their enemies. You need to find out this guy was not a nice guy. So Nehemiah is not asking Artaxerxes, you know who he's already asked? God. He said, God, I believe you're going to do the impossible. If he ever asks me what I want, I'm going to tell him what I want. And he just believed God. You know, that's awesome. I think God can still do the impossible. If you're ever going to look into a, a, the abyss of your past, the abyss of your pain and the abyss of your habits, and you look at the rubble that's there, you're going to have to say, I think God can fix it. <laughs> and I think God can supply all I need so that it's restored and repaired and is beautiful. That's how you start. And then lastly, Nehemiah saw God as his God. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Then I told them of the hand of my God. Did you notice that? Just snuck in there, didn't it? Didn't say. He's been talking about the God of heaven, the God of heaven, the God of heaven. He said that all the way through, hadn't he? But now he says, then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good unto me. God, I, I wish I could ask you to raise your hands. Should I ask? Has God been good to you? You know, your kids need to know that. Your kids need to know that you don't deserve it. And that all the good stuff in your life, God's just been good to me, man. My God was good unto me. You see, God's not supposed to be just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not to be the, the God of the old time. He's supposed to be the God of our time. Amen? Uh, we were talking to... John and trying to get a theme for the teens this year. And, you know, God is in the generation of the righteous. Not God was. God is. Do you know God's not just a God of Peter, James, and John? You know what he is? He's the God of Craig and Leo and Sean and Bill and Geraldine and Nita and Helen and Mona and Clive, amazingly, and, and Fiona and uh, Niall. And uh, Kevin and Eileen and 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 I think Eric and uh, Weston and Beth. Hey, listen. Make him your God. You see, when you get when you get that view of God, you're talking about my God. You're talking about my Savior. He's right. He has he has saved me not because I'm right, but because He's right. He's been in my life because He's faithful, not because I'm faithful. Amen. You start there. And any problem, any task is doable. Now, Nehemiah's view of himself. Now, let's talk about himself for a minute. And let's just point out one word in verse 6. Chapter 1 and verse 6. Again, since God will, therefore we will. That's my point. All right, well, how do I get this kind of courage? We've got a good view of God. Let's look at the view of yourself. Verse 6 says this. Let thine ear now be attentive. Now, he's writing in his journal. This is Nehemiah's own journal. And he says, let thine ear, speaking to God, now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant. To Nehemiah, he saw himself as a servant of God. Yes, he's serving the king. Yes, he's got this big, plushy, cushy job. 
if you want to take, consider poison checker. <laughs> as a, but he's pretty well taken care of. But you know he, what he calls himself? Not the servant of a king, but the servant of the king. He saw himself as a servant of God. That doesn't sound very big, but it's a source of great confidence. Most people see themselves as the slave of someone else. Many women see themselves as the slave to their children and even to their husband. Many see themselves as a slave. Many men see themselves as slaves to their wives. Many see themselves as slaves to their employer. Others see themselves trapped in their aloneness. Slaves, others are slaves to their passions and to their sinful habits. You know what I am? I'm a servant of the Most High God. I don't care whoever I'm serving, I serve Him. I don't care whoever I'm helping, I'm serving Him. I don't care what other people think, I serve him. Go to Romans chapter 1, please. A Christian has made themselves the servant of a new master. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Still holding your place in, in Nehemiah. We know Paul to be the great apostle of the Gentiles. But you know what Paul, how he calls himself? Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, what's the next two words? A servant. A servant of Jesus Christ. I'm called to be an apostle. Now, was Paul an apostle, yes or no? He was an apostle, but he says, I'm not living up to it yet. I don't know how to be a great apostle. I don't know how to do this thing right. I know I'm called to be an apostle, but you know what I am? I am a servant. Do you know you can be a servant? You say, I'm not that smart. You can serve. Well, I don't have any money. You can serve. Well, I don't have, you, you, you have no excuse to say that you can't be a servant. Go to chapter 10, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. I want you to see a word that repeats here. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. What I just point out there. One key word, what's it? The Lord. Not just Jesus. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For the heart man believeth unto righteousness, being made right, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Down to verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of Jesus. Is that what it says? The name of the Lord. You see, I kind of, I changed masters. Sin was my master. My own heart was my master. My friends were my masters. And you know what, they, what I was? A slave. If they said, Craig, why don't you ride your bike over that, that ravine and kill yourself? Craig, why don't you uh, uh, go in this race and uh, risk your life and limb trying to run down these back roads? I just did it. I man, to please my friends, I did whatever. Craig, why don't you rebel against your dad and let your hair grow out? Why don't you? Anything my friends said to do, guess what I did? Whatever they said, I was a slave. You know what? When I got born again, I changed now, not to a slave, but to a servant of a different master. Uh, go to Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 in verse 16. Romans 6, 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey whether of sin unto death, or if you would obey unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. Boy, you ought to underline those words. God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed now from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness, of good things, of things that, 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 are, that are eternal and they're beneficial. I'm no longer a slave, folks. I am a servant by choice. Did you know a slave has no choice? But this servant does, amen? How do you view yourself? Most people view themselves as two extremes. Some, see, some people see themselves as superior masters. I'm smarter than you. I'm better looking than you. I got more Facebook friends than you. While others see themselves as just slaves. But the only true, truly confident and balanced mindset, the best attitude that a Christian should have, 
is someone who sees themselves as the servant of the Most High God. You need to make servants out of your family because the greatest man who ever lived, Jesus Christ, he took upon himself the form of a servant and was obedient unto death. So folks, you want to you fix your kids right off the bat? Make them serve. Don't make their bed anymore. Amen. Don't go into their room and clean their room. Say, well, Johnny's only three months old. Okay, clean his room. <laughs> but if he's 30, make him clean his own room. And then, by the way, make him fix dinner for you and dad. Amen. The worst thing that we have in this generation is 20-year-olds have no idea how to be a blessing to nobody because all they've been done is raised up as bull brats who say, where's mine? Well, how come you're not taking care of me? Well, mommy said I was the most important person in the world. Not anymore. Amen. Make a servant out of your kids. I'm looking at you. <laughs> Make a servant out of your kids, and you'll, you'll help them go a long way. That's all we are, folks. That's all we are. I'm a servant following the greatest servant. Now, Nehemiah had some enemies. Still in chapter 2, verse 19. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn, they despised it, and they said, what is this thing that ye do? And will ye rebel against the king? They're making up all kinds of things. You know, um, Nehemiah expected trouble. He expected his enemies. Don't you think that, don't you forget that as soon as you decide to read your Bible, in the morning, everything's going to go wrong tomorrow morning. You know that. As soon as you decide to put a gospel track in your pocket, you're going to go to the office, and your boss is going to say, there'll be no more proselytizing. And you're going, what if I was going to witness today. As soon as you decide that, you know, I'm going to be at church on Sunday night, your kids are going to throw up, going to have to go to the doctor, everything's going to go wrong, appendectomies, I don't know. Just believe me, expect it. Amen? Expect it. Nehemiah had some expected enemies, but he was unafraid of them. He's unafraid of their words. He was unafraid of their actions. Why? Because he knew that they could be defeated. He knew that they could be defeated. There, there was no doubt in Nehemiah's mind. He knew Romans 8.31 before it ever was written, If God be for us, who can be against us? He, also, uh, he knew that they had no right anymore to put fear into his heart. They had no right to be worried about. He was not going to cater to their whims anymore. And when the devil comes and whispers into your ear and says, remind you of your past, remind him of his future. And realize, I do not fear you anymore. Our enemies, Satan and all his devils, are just troublesome ants that just need to be swept out the door every time they show up. Ants... Don't go away all the time, especially in America. We grew up with ants all the time. I have a vivid memory of mama hosing me down when I played accidentally on an ant pile. That's the fastest strip down I remember. Mom took off all my clothes, turned on the water. Those ants were covering all over me. I was screaming to death. We lived, we grew up with ants. They were fire ants, yeah. But we grew up with ants. You know what? You know what you do with ants? You can't kill them all. But when they show up, you sweep them out. You clean them up, wait for the next batch. The devil will show up and he'll knock on your door, back door. He'll come in the window, come down the chimney. Uh, he'll, he'll, he'll sneak up behind you. You got to just push him out because he's coming. He's coming. He'll agitate you. He'll give you things to say that you didn't know you could say, <laughs> that you shouldn't say. And you got to go, I got to sweep this, this thing out of here. Nehemiah had a good view of his enemies. He says, you don't belong in this head or this heart anymore. Amen. Nehemiah had, I'm about through. Nehemiah had a good view of people that he was with. He didn't see the people that he was with as slaves. You know, when, when the pharaohs wanted to build their great cities and their pyramids, you know what he used? Slaves by the millions. If Nehemiah is going to do this, he's got to have Willing helpers. I need a team. I need a family. I need people who show up, who say, this is, this is not just pastor's vision. This is 
our vision. This isn't just pastor's church. This is our church. This isn't just soul winning for a few. This is soul winning by the body of Christ. I tell you, when Nehemiah looked at that small group of people, and he said, look over there in chapter 2, verse 17, then said I unto them, and he wasn't talking to a lot of them. He says, then said I unto them, ye see the distress that we are in. How Jerusalem lieth in waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, choose, decide. Hey, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more reproach. Verse 19. Oh, sorry. Let's keep going to verse 18. Then I told them of the hand of my God that was good upon me, and also the king's words that he has spoken unto me. And they said, yeah, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah looked at those people, he says, I'm not telling you what to do, I'm asking. Will you choose today to help me build these walls? He didn't see them as slaves, but as a team and a family. Arrogance believes you don't need God's people. And there's too many in this, in this church of ours who says, I only need to come Sunday morning, and I know you're busy, and I'm not going to come and judge you and tell you, I, know, I don't know what you're going through. I'm going to tell you this, if you're sitting in front of that television tonight, I hope your television explodes. <laughs> Amen. Now, if you're busy, go ahead. Amen. I'm unplugging the television tonight. <laughs> you know, it would have been an arrogant jerk if Nehemiah says, I don't need anybody. I can rebuild these walls by myself. You can go right ahead. You're going to burn out, wear out, blow out. What other outs, Eric? I don't know. Arrogance says, I don't need God's people. You know, we need each other, and I need you. I, I, I need God's people together. I need, when I call for us to do something, I need you to say, oh, I got to do it. Amen? Nehemiah and the biblical Christian just works with the people that God gave you. I think of this. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, verse 26, 27 says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things, hallelujah, of the world to confound the things which are mighty. You look around and you go, well, there's a bunch of poor people around here. I don't see any 181 cars out there in the lot. Now, if you got one, God bless you, amen. But how do you view God's people? Does it bother? Well, in this church, you know, there's not many wealthy people, not many smart people in this church. You know who gather around Jesus Christ the most? The poor, the lame, the messed up, hallelujah, the broken, demon-possessed. Don't tell me you match that. <laughs> the... Um, the harlot, the sinner, the hated. Jesus said, come unto me. You know, when you've got a church full of real people, it's the best place to be, amen? Don't you dare look down your nose on anybody and go, well, they're not quite what I need for a client. No, no, no. You need to look around and go, this is family, amen? Nehemiah looked at them and said as equals, he said, I need your help. How do you view God's people? How do you view God's people? Hmm. We desperately need to see each other differently like God does. You see, this compassionate, burdened view of God's people that Nehemiah had, and, and there, his burdened view of the need for a city wall encouraged Nehemiah to work with anybody. See, he, he looked at what needed to be done. He looked at people. He says, let's get to it. He didn't go, ah, you're not qualified. I know you won't work out, and I know you'll quit, and I know. He didn't do anything. He just says, let's do it. Amen? Your view, when you, if you ever go and you watch those kids over there in Sunday school and in Children's Church, it might just break your heart and you say, I want to help with this. When you start looking around going, I can't do much, but I can love these kids. You go down to 12 Weeks to Freedom, we're getting ready to start up in April, and you sit down there and you watch those, those people come in there and sit down there, never in church in the last 20 years, people broken, people who can't read, people who don't know anything about the, 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 the God of the Bible, and your heart breaks, and you love them like they're your own family. That's how you need to view them. 
Nina's dying, and we, the last thing you ought to look at is the task. The task. Let me list for you a couple of things that might be in your task list. How's your, how's your spiritual life? Is it in ruins? How's your testimony? <laughs> People at work here praise and worship and honor, or do they hear your cursing? Filthy words, anger, wrath, bitterness coming out of your mouth. You blow your testimony? That's something you need to fix. How about getting yourself in debt? Always on the constant brink of ruin. Wouldn't that be nice to be fixed? How about an addiction? How about a home filled with broken hearts instead of joy and blessings? Broken marriages, broken minds, broken health. You know, you start, you start to look at the task, you may just see nothing but rubble. That's all you see. Nehemiah, that's all he saw. What should have discouraged him, instead, you find him fully encouraged. Why? Why was he able to do that? Because it was necessary. He's like the... Now, He's like most first responders. That, that scum bucket of a, of a deputy over there in that school, they're blaming guns and they're blaming the government. Listen, there was an armed police officer at that school in Florida and he stayed back and he wouldn't go up and face off that shooter. You know, when somebody's shooting and if you have the ability to take them down, you move, you do it because it's necessary, amen? And you're going to have to look. You're going to have to look at your home. You're going to have to look at your way of thinking. And if your mind is constantly going to porn, if your mind is constantly going into anger, your mind is constantly going into to, uh, uh, to depression, your mind is constantly going into thievery, your mind is constantly going into hanging with the wrong crowd that's going to get you back in drugs, you're going to have to say, I've got to fix this. You've got to run at it. You've got to say, I'm not going to sit by and let my life self-destruct some more. It is necessary. My task to, to repair Nehemiah, the greatest thing you learn from Nehemiah is something's got to be done. Something's got to be done. He had no guarantee it was going to work. He had no guarantee these walls are going to shimmer and shine. He just said it's got to be done. That's what we need to do when we look at our problems in our marriage, in our home, in our relationships, in our church, and in our nation. Yesterday I was out in, in Cork City, and I met a couple of and I try to go to these, these canvassers who are standing out there and they're handing out stuff on pro-life. And I go up to them and I say, thank you. Are you pro-life? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And every one of them said, but I'm very discouraged. Every one of them said that. And, you know, my heart just goes out. You know why they're out there? Not because they think they're going to win, but because they know they've got to be out there. I think we should join them. I think we need to open our mouths, I said last week, but that's another thing. It was a calling. By the way, there are plenty of you that have great careers, and I'm not telling you to change careers. I'm asking you to ask God for a calling. Nehemiah had a career. You know what his career was? Sipping wine for the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. But he knew a calling was greater than any career he ever could have. No matter how much money he would ever make, no matter what type of life he could enjoy, he said, God has called me. You need that. If you want to have true joy, if you want to have success and victory in the Christian life, don't follow a career only. Amen. If you're going to enjoy building cars or serving tables or whatever you want to do, that's fine. But if God burns your heart with a calling, it'll be the greatest thing you'll ever do with your life. He was not discouraged. He was encouraged because he said, let's do this by faith. Let's do this by faith. You know, builders today, they can calculate how many nails and screws and bricks could be, would be used. Nehemiah had a pretty good idea, but he said, just bring a bucket of, of nails and we'll see how many we use. You know, you can stand in front of a machine and just type in a number and out comes a, a product. But there's something wonderful when you just grab a brick and you don't know how high it's going to be, you don't know how wide it's going to be, you just start building there's a thrill, and Nehemiah was encouraged at the task. So next time the devil scares you and tries to put you off from trying to do the impossible, say, I think I might enjoy this. Not because the task is so fun, but because the product 
the end product will be worth it all. So whatever's broken in your life and ruined by sin has got to be seen as necessary to be restored, as your calling. I don't care if you're a doctor. I don't care if you're a rocket scientist. I don't care if you're a preacher. You know what your calling is? To fix things, to repair things, to reach down, get your hands dirty, and say, I've made a mess of this. Sin has broken up my home. Sin has broken into my mind. Sin has destroyed this family. Sin has destroyed these people. I want to help. I'm going to do it by faith. Now, next month, we're going to start the task of actually rebuilding broken things. Our, our memory verse next month is Isaiah 61. You had an easy one this month. This month's, Next month's a little longer. It says, and they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations to many generations. They're going to affect it for generations, Isaiah 61.4. What is it that you need to work on? I have to tell you something. The Lord Jesus is the great rebuilder of the human heart. And he will help you rebuild everything that sin has destroyed. And since God will rebuild, so will I. Sometimes we think about trying to get God on our side in our back pocket, but I think we got it backwards. I think we need to be doing what God's doing, and we're invincible. And if he's a rebuilder, if he's a lover of broken people, so should I be. No one ever starts a product, starts a project already disappointed and defeated. You ever try to watch uh, um, uh, Thomas when Jesus says, we got to go to Jerusalem. And all the disciples said, they just wanted to kill you down there. You know what Thomas said? Let's go die. That's not how you start, even. I think his middle name was Eeyore. What do you think? You need to see courage to see whatever you're going to face, to see it through and confident so that you can finish it well. Where does it come from? It comes from something greater than arrogance. A lot of people have thought that, Craig, you're so hyper-confident. You're so arrogant. And I take that very personally. Like, the last thing I want to give you is the impression I know what I'm doing. And that I've got this self-confidence just oozing out of me. Let me tell you this. I just, got, I just got my view of God right. I worked very hard to just look at him. And Nehemiah is a good example how to do that. Now, you'll only get such courage and confidence from having the right, as I said, view of God. Right view of yourself. See yourself as a servant. You know, when you come into church, you're like, all right, pastor, try and move me. <laughs> We're dead on arrival, man. <laughs> But you come in here and start serving people, start encouraging, find somebody who's alone and go there and say, how was your week? Your view of your enemies, you know, you only have one real enemy, you know that? Amen. Get a good view of your enemy and go, that person, oh, not that person, that being has no more place in my mind, my thinking, my fears, or my heart. View of God's people, most precious people you could ever know. If you have all, I don't care if you've got 37 things you need to work on. Just look at them and it says, since God wants to fix them, so will I. Amen? I have to finish with this. Let me tell you how God sees you. You know how God sees you? He sees you as worth all his efforts. Amen? He hadn't given up on you. I was 17 years old when I realized God had been knocking all my life. God had been trying to get my attention. When I was 16, I flipped my car. I realized I could have died. I had no idea where I would go. And when one woman said, where would you be when you die? My mind went right back to the year before where I flipped my car and I should have died. And I said, I have no idea where I would go. But God was very good to me. And all the efforts that God put through and still putting through into my life, you know what he thinks? I'm worth it. Amen. He thinks you're worth the life of his only begotten son. God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth just on him, not on the church, not on the preacher, not on yourself, but whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. He thinks you're worth him giving up his son for you. He thinks you're not impossible. <laughs> I think that's awesome. I mean, I'm sure my mom went, you're impossible, a thousand times when I was growing up. You know what God said? You're not. And no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, God thinks you're not impossible. 
He, wants, he sees you as a trophy of what grace can do. One of these days, he wants to look at the devil and go, see, I told you Ledbetter would do right. See, I told you Ledbetter would get right. I told you Ledbetter would be a trophy, something I could show off. Begins with salvation. Begins with you crying out to the Lord Jesus as a messed up, lost, broken person. Have you ever done that? You say, well, I go to church all the time. You can go to church like a car goes into a garage. It doesn't make you a mechanic. <clears throat> you know what you need? You need Jesus Christ. You need him in you. And he doesn't storm in. He doesn't force his way in. He waits for you to cry out to him and says, Lord, I need you. I need you not to be my helper but my Savior. Let's bow our heads in prayer. You may see, stay seated for just a moment. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Think for a moment. What's broken in your life? I bet you could list 50 things. A lot of wrong decisions. What's broken? Trust? Relationships? What's broken? Hearts? Minds? Habits? I bet you could list 50. The Lord's not, not going to let you alone. The Lord's not going to leave you alone. He wants to fix things. And Nehemiah is a great example that we just got to want it. So maybe you'd say, Lord... There's some things that in my life are broken. And I could blame, I could blame my wife, I could blame my husband, I blame my I could blame the preacher. But Lord, I need you. And what I want is it to be fixed. I don't want it to be judged. I don't want it to be condemned. I don't want it to be destroyed. I want some fixing. I want some rebuilding. And I think I've learned today that you're all I need. Before I look at anything else, and before I try to analyze and figure out and understand anything else, I just want to understand you and love you and look up to you and trust you. And I haven't done that in a while, maybe. Maybe I've just been looking at my problems, my hurts. So, Lord, since you will fix anything, so will I. I choose now to begin a work. It may be taking me all year, but I want to. Because when you set out and stepped into this world, you didn't stop until you could cry out, it is finished. Lord, I pray that you will finish, like you promised, the work you began in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.